Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. Welcome to the Bunker Daily, where we talk to interesting people about the state we're in. There's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday, and the main Bunker podcast comes out on Wednesday mornings. So subscribe and we will keep going for the foreseeable future, five days a week. We live in dystopian times. A lot of people are currently turning to fiction about dreadful scenarios, perhaps to remind themselves that things could be worse. Uh, Having written a book about George Orwell in 1984, I know the territory well, and so does my guest, Naomi Oldham is the author of five novels, most recently The Power, which won the Bailey Women's Prize for Fiction, was one of Barack Obama's favourite books of 2017, and is set to become a TV show. Hi, Naomi. Thanks for joining me. Hello. Lovely to be here. Yes, it is, it is set to become a TV show whenever we're allowed to start shooting it again. Were you in which, pre-production at the time? We, no, we were shooting. You were shooting a... Re- oh, no. Yes, I know. I know. I drew, I drew the short straw. Yes, we were about... Three weeks into shooting, and I think it was it was not even maybe two or three weeks ago we were still sort of having conversations about whether we'd be able to go on to the next part of the shoot. And we were just like, well, we'll have to just be careful, you know. And um, events, dear boy, as they say. <laughs> What's your role on the show? How how how? Um... Right. Well, I am sort of officially the showrunner. I've written the pilot episode. I'm. Working with a team of very brilliant writers who are um, writing it as well. I'm an executive producer. I'm, um, yeah, overseeing some wow. of it. I mean, yeah, it's it's been it's been quite a full on interesting experience. Um, yes, <laughs> also uh, when the apocalypse happened, um, I was in the middle of writing a new novel about a p- global pandemic. No. So, yeah, so that's interesting. Um, I think it might be possible to rescue this novel, but probably the first third of it will just be able to be replaced by a single sentence now because I won't have to explain to people what a global pandemic is, you know, or explain what the, what the implications of that would be in the modern world. So it's interesting times right now, isn't it, for all of us? So, uh, so I'm going to cast the net wide uh, in, in this in this chat and sort of talk about all kinds of relevant fiction. Not worry too much about kind of genre uh, tags. Um, I've got Camus' The Plague by my bed, uh, which I can handle, but I don't have the stomach for uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Oh, I th- <laughs> which is yes. too bleak. <laughs> I read I read The Road whilst I had a fever. Which not not recently, not recently, right, yeah. many years ago, and I can highly recommend not doing that. Um, it is uh, that is a bleak book, I would say. I am I am in a certain way an author of post apocalyptic fiction myself because uh, I co created and I write this game called Zombies Run, which takes place after a zombie apocalypse. And one of the things that I really object to in the road is the sort of the 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 
assumption baked into it somewhere that um, quite a lot of people are really just waiting for an apocalypse to turn to cannibalism. I feel like that is a strong theme in certain um, post-apocalyptic novels that uh, if everything were to go to shit, the first thing some of us would want to do would just be to eat other people and the rest of us would instantly fall victim to them and there would be these terrible bands of marauders. And certainly the road seems to me not only bleak about the environment, which there might be some cause to be bleak about, but also bleak about human nature, which it seems to me less there's less cause to be bleak. So yes, don't don't read the road whilst you have a fever. Um, I would say right now, don't read it at all. It's a very very good book. I think I fundamentally disagree with its take on humanity. How about you, Dorian? Well, well the well the, another one that I kind of couldn't reread. Um, because it ends just too, it just howlingly bleak. It's zone one, the, um, uh, not Colson Whitehead. Colson Whitehead. Zombie yes. one. Zombies, um, yes. And obviously this is not, a, this is not a genre which, you know, which is, is famous for happy endings, but there's, you know, there, there are degrees of bleakness. Which, which kind of, um, dark futures or alternative realities do you think, do you find, um, tolerable, Uh, at a a time like this because obviously some people are just going to be like look I'm not reading anything remotely in this in this vein but other people are drawn to it in in this in this dark landscape if you haven't read uh Station Eleven you must instantly go and read it uh because it is it Station Eleven starts with a pandemic as as we all do uh it's a novel by Emily St John Mandel and uh It then goes on to talk about the people who are trying to keep culture alive after a very significant pandemic. Now, I must say, one of the nice things about Station Eleven is to understand that there are many, many worse pandemics than the one we're currently going through. Uh, Many of us during, obviously, every death is a tragedy and... uh, the lives we're living now is not particularly nice, <laughs> but um, many of us are going to end up living through uh, the most luxurious plague that humanity has ever experienced. So um, uh, Station Eleven is, is it's just, it's a really hopeful book about, yes, there are some bad people, but also many people want to band together, want to keep culture alive, even in the face of an illness that were to kill 90 or 95% of people in the world, which we're absolutely not living through, thank goodness. Um, something will survive, which I find very comforting. Um, and there was some de- uh, some debate about whether, you know, the power, um, how that how that is defined, I think, in, in as a Guardian piece, you go, is it dystopian? Well, only if you're a man. And the yeah. dystopia <laughs> is a word that is to sort of, which I didn't, I didn't realise until I was doing sort of book research that, that basically nobody really used it until the 60s and it didn't start to catch on in the 70s. And now it just means sort of everything. Everything, yeah, well, everything, any, any <laughs> dark story that is not literally describing the world we currently live in. Right, right. I mean, people also said to me that it was satire, the power, which I was also very puzzled by because I thought satire had to have an element of exaggeration to it, whereas I felt that the power was a pretty realistic portrayal of what it's like to be a woman right now. Um, 
<laughs> I mean... <laughs> well, what was the kind of... What was your first... Um, the ones that sort of enthralled you when you were younger that would have... This, this sort of idea of exploring ideas and other political social ideas... Um, Oh, goodness me. I, well, certainly I read a huge amount of Ursula Le Guin, who I can very strongly recommend. Um, I also read a lot of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, actually, Douglas Adams, where that does start with the world exploding. And then you say, all right, well, after the world explodes, what then? Um, Ursula Le Guin is particularly good at imagining society's that are very different to ours and societies in transition and change. There's a really interesting reason for that, Dorian, if you would bear with me for a little excursion into the world of Ursula Le Guin. All right. So Ursula Le Guin's brilliant books. Um, there's a wonderful book called The Lathe of Heaven, which um, is sort of about a man whose dreams become reality, but I don't want to tell you any more than that, lest I spoil it. Uh, there's also The Dispossessed, which is a very, very good book about um, a breakaway uh, society that tries to live on uh, purely um, egalitarian grounds where nobody owns anything. And she really takes you into that society. There's also one of her most famous books is The Left Hand of Darkness, which is about a society with several different genders, which is quite a quite a mind bender when you read it. Mm. Um, she... She writes a lot about the people who are left out by different societies and she's always very insistent on drawing our attention to the fact that um, every utopia is a dystopia for somebody. I am very interested by (laughs) Ursula Le Guin and why she wrote like this. So um, in the early 19th century, a... Uh, a Native American man called Ishii uh, came in from the wild, as it was described. And at the time, he was called the last wild Indian in um, newspapers at the time. He was part of the Yahi tribe, and uh, he had spent many years visiting the different um, places where Yahi people settled. And in the end, having visited everywhere multiple times, he came to the conclusion that he was the last surviving member of the Yahi tribe uh, and that all the others had been massacred. So he allowed himself to be found, basically. And he was taken... It was in California. He was taken to a naturalist museum in California where he lived for several years with um, Alfred and Theodora Kraber, who were a husband and wife anthropology team who wrote about uh, Ishii, about the kind of person that he was, about what it was like for him to be the last of his people. There's a really devastating book about him that they wrote, which he was quite desperate to have some of the traditions of his culture be recorded. He loved spending time with children and showing them the traditional ways that he had learned to make tools and explaining his way of life to them. And, um, but, but it was, it was a very sad, lonely life, uh, because there was no other Yahi person for him to marry. He felt that he couldn't, uh, be in a relationship with anybody. And, um, they talk about his, his, feelings of sexual starvation um it it, it's it's a story about uh the victims of the american utopian 
project. Mm. Anyway, um, Alfred and Theodora Kraber were the parents of Ursula Le Guin. And so she grew up in a house full of these ideas about who is left out of every utopia. Every utopia is a dystopia for somebody. And indeed, every dystopia is a utopia for someone. I mean, if you watch a film like Mad Max Fury Road, well, it's very nice for uh, Immortan Joe and his mates, Mm. you know. There's always somebody benefiting and somebody not benefiting. So um, that's why I'm very insistent to say (laughs) the power is only a dystopia if you're a man. What do you think? I mean, there used to be, you know, 140, 130 years ago, there was a big trend for utopian novels, and that continued for for some time. Um, And for the last few decades, with with a few exceptions, and Ursula Le Guin, obviously, um, you know, mixes dystopian utopia. You know, people generally don't want to read uh, utopian novels, um, but they love reading about terrible, terrible uh, <laughs> states. And, you know, you've got your kind of police state, I suppose, Orwellian school. Yep. And then you've got your, uh, your the road school where it's just like complete chaos and anarchy and, as we've discussed, people eating each other. Cannibalism. I'm sure um, that everybody who's, are... who's experiencing COVID right now or the COVID lockdown is really battling with internal forces trying to tell them to eat other people. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Carrie. Why do... Like, but this stuff is... is, is I mean, obviously, you, you know, these, these books are very um, successful and, and films, and there seems to be an obsession with just... Um, Awful scenarios, yeah. I have I have a few theories about this. Um, I, I'm interested by thinking about when utopias came to an end. So uh, in writing The Power, I did read a book by Edward Bulwer-Lytton called The Coming Race, yes, which is yeah. yes, which is about a utopian civilization uh, in which um, the women have all mastered this power called Vril which is a sort of electric power that means that you can do everything you could possibly want with it. Um, and, and they sort of power things with their vril and the, 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 the use of vril has created a utopia. I suspect utopias died somewhere between 1914 and 1918. Um, that's, that's just my sort of finger in the wind thinking about it, going, can I think of any significant utopias created after about 1920 does seem to uh, and i think hg wells was still going he was still yeah 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 i mean was he was he, was he writing utopias though he was wells? he was yeah. but he was i mean it, yes i suppose you needed to fun. you needed to believe that it was possible and yeah, yeah. um so this is the sort of famous postmodernist um insight by uh, Jean-François Lyotard, uh, who notices that what's happened, what happens across the 20th century is that increasingly people become very, very wary about grand narratives. So it used to be, it, in, in the year 1900, you could believe that communism really was going to fix everything. And then by the time in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, people started to really understand what Stalinism had been. Uh, People stopped being able to go, oh yes, communism will definitely just fix everything. Um, Similarly, there were feelings that maybe nationalism was the thing, but, you know, the First World War paid to that. There was an idea that science maybe could be the thing that would just drive humanity forward and then we used it to make Zyklon B in gas chambers. Yeah. So I think I think the long 20th century was um, 
testing to destruction a lot of those ideas that we could just make everything brilliant. And maybe we've been rehearsing that ever since. Maybe it's time, though, for a resurgence of the utopia. I feel like I could do with one right now, but it would have to be... It would have to be problematized, wouldn't it? We would have to somehow understand that it will never be perfect. And a lot of a lot of these kind of books, they are presented as sort of text in a way. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, the Handmaid's Tale has this kind of epilogue. It's like a document that's been discovered. Um, you have some you have some sort of epilogue in, in in the power, which kind of frames the text, and it's just like is there a kind of desire to make it feel. Um, particularly you know, when you're sketching out things that might be improbable yeah. or at least extreme, to make it feel as if, yes, this is a real uh, document or recording. Well, I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell collage. you what it is for me. I think it's many things, actually, that, that, that question. Um, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes. Good. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, I think, uh, certainly for me, I had a I had a real sense of absolute fucking terror when I realized that the whole Roman civilization had been as sophisticated as ours and had just crumbled away into then several hundred years of um misery and wretchedness as people forgot how to do all the things that the Romans had known how to do. That is that is a proper apocalyptic slow motion event um, of when you read Roman authors, which I did as a teenager, because that's the sort of teenager I was. Um, <laughs> when you read Roman authors and you feel the meeting of a mind that you feel in when you read a book and you go, oh, you're funny, you know, or you understand that person. You can, you can feel as if you have met them. And then you go, oh, and all of that that you were part of just went away. And of course, this happens again and again through history. And when we discover that, and when we really understand it, then we have to say to ourselves, well, what is going to be the end of my society? And will there then arise something in the future where people are reading my words or looking at this object that I own and trying to work out something about me from a far Mm. distant time? So I think... I think what that what that sort of collage aspect is, is a recognition that um, our historical moment doesn't go to the edges of the page. Uh, our historical moment is just one little stamp that someone's licked and put on a page that's already covered with a lot of other different stamps and stickers. And um, in order to really understand an apocalypse, you have to be able to say... And, and then that will be it for us. And then something else will come along. Um, somebody else will be trying to uh, reconstitute what we did here. Yeah. Mm. So, and, and I think, I don't know, I've been watching, I've been watching the most, the, the new Star Trek, Star Trek Picard, which as a sort of side note, has a culture in it that arose and then vanished and left a message in a set of interesting, uh, in an interesting star system. And it's just a sort of given of science fiction that we understand that if we can look that far into the future, we can also look that far into the past and go, oh, crap. <laughs> Every civilization before ours has thought there would not be a civilization event ending event. And yet there has been. So what are we going to do about that? 
when I when I brought up this idea of, of the podcast talking about sort of dystopian stuff and and, and and the kind of books and movies that people were turning to, you kind of mentioned uh, something completely outside that category. Mm. Um, the finding the time loops of Groundhog Day, which which weirdly I did rewatch the other day, and Russian Doll, sort mm. of relevant to this moment. Yes. Uh, can, can you talk about that? Yes. Yeah, so. Um Groundhog Day, if, if I had to name a favourite film, it probably is my favourite film. I think it's a film about the meaning of life. And I've been thinking about it a lot recently because there is, I mean, I don't have to explain the whole film, right? But there's, there's Phil Connors, uh, Bill Murray's character, who is stuck in the same place and every day is the same. And he can't pursue any long-term ambitions. He's just every day it resets and resets and resets. And and the joy of Groundhog Day, which I think applies to the same thing that I'm talking about with civilizations rising and falling, is that he manages in the end to find meaning and joy in the moments that even though they don't have any long-term outcome. And I have been thinking a lot, as I've often thought, actually, about what it is that uh, Bill Murray's character manages to do in Groundhog Day that ends up feeling meaningful. So he reads, he learns, he opens his heart to other people. He learns how to be more compassionate to the people around him. He tries to do something to help. And fundamentally, that does seem like pretty good advice right now. Um he, d- yeah, then, he, d- he doesn't just sit there uh, working his way through the 50 best shows to stream now. No. <laughs> he, no. he learns to throw cards into a hat and right, play the piano. He does. <laughs> but he also tries to save the life of a homeless man. Yeah. And, and he ends up really finding out about the people around him. Now, obviously, that is more difficult if you can't touch them. Um, but at the same time, it seems like um, allow- allowing a sort of moment of not being able to go anywhere to really open you up to the people who are near you doesn't seem like a terrible idea. Mm. Um, And then there's also uh, the wonderful Russian doll, uh, which was made by uh, Natasha Leon, um, which, which takes Groundhog Day on in an interesting way. Um, Oh, I feel like I'm about to do a spoiler for, for, for Russian Uh, doll. Let me think. Well, basically, she she does kind of. It starts in the, like in the first episode. It shows that basically she just keeps reliving the same yeah period. Okay, I'm going differently. I'm going to give as a, a, a spoiler, and if you don't want to hear that spoiler, listeners, just go on <laughs> for a minute or two, <laughs> wind forward, uh, which is that it turns out there's somebody else trapped in the same time loop with her, and the end is that they have to somehow learn to care for one another. So there you go. I haven't um, given any actual plot spoilers, really. But um, that seemed to me to be address one of the questions in um, Groundhog Day that is sort of left hanging because he's just there by himself. So what would it have been like if he and Andy McDowell had, had had to be sitting in the same fucking house for several months, getting on each other's nerves, the t- time like resetting for each of them every day? Mm. How do you love somebody through that? And I, so I think I think Russian Doll is also quite an interesting thought about how we can possibly deal with the fact that the people around us are going to keep on doing that same irritating thing and now we can't even go to the office to get away from them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it's just that, just that, that just me. Maybe yeah, that yeah. just me. Yeah. No, I definitely feel, I, every time I wake up in the morning, I, I, I hear, I got you, babe, in my head. <laughs> and, I, and I think, how can I, how can I improve today? 
worth maybe it's worth yeah. thinking it about once a week. How are you well, doing with um, making the days feel different? Not they're quite repetitive. Yeah, <laughs> but I like. I mean, I like my family. That's nice. Yeah, that's good. That's um, good. Yeah. That is uh, good. Uh, but no, they are quite repetitive. Yeah, but uh, by by force. And and what struck me here is that. What is really unusual about scenarios is sort of everybody, not, it's not quite every country in the world, but, you know, a vast proportion of the world is experiencing a version of this. Certainly, oh, huge parts of, you know, Europe and the Western world is experiencing the lockdown. And I do wonder what kind of art would be made about this when it's something that, in a sense, everybody knows. You're not doing what some people do, which is to sort of show you to go out and venture into sort of an extremist, whether it's sort of all well going, look, here is Stalinism and Nazism. You didn't live under it. Mm. You know, many people did, but, you know, showing it to people that didn't and going, this is mm. what it was like. Nobody always sort of needs to be told what this is like. Do you think that there will be a real struggle to create, obviously not your own novel, started before <laughs> coronavirus, accepted. But do you think for people, for people who are trying to write something about this period, that there will be a real struggle to find something new to tell readers or viewers and, and not just to sort of show them what they already remember? I think, I think there will be an initial struggle, but then I think there's been a struggle for a few years now for novelists um, because the news has been so unusually intense and um almost as if some of it was directed by a reality tv star <laughs> who yeah who, who used to have his own show where every week you had to have some exciting new thing happening um i think i think things like the trump presidency and brexit have been quite difficult because um there there, there hasn't been a solid ground to feel like okay i know what the next I know I know what it means when I talk about a prime minister. I know what it means when I talk about Britain, if I'm writing about Britain. So, and I think there have been, I, I, I feel like I've seen novelists slightly um, flapping, trying to write about, about things very directly, which doesn't always work. Um, but at the same time, I think this will be an epoch in life that there will always be, different things to say about. So um, I'm thinking about uh, Virginia Woolf writing um, after the First World War, writing about the First World War. There were many, many different stories to tell about the First World War. It had happened to a lot of the world, mm. and yet not everybody had been in the same position. So you and I don't know what it's like to be a doctor right now. And in the future, I would really like to know. I don't really want to know right now. <laughs> I think I, I will be very interested in drama about that once it's over. Right now, I want to give support mm. to the real doctors rather than to see a fictional doctor. But I think at some point, I probably would like to see a fictional doctor. I probably would like to know what it's like to be in government right now. I probably would like to see a, you know, a version of um, The Thick of It, which really talks about what's been happening in our government and other governments around the world. I'd like to know what it's like to be, I don't know, in a Welsh hill farm right now. Or I think also about, um, you know, for example, people who are being abused by a domestic partner. That seems to me to be a peculiarly awful potential mm. situation to be in right now. So I think it feels very big. 
And I mean, obviously it is very big, but in terms of um, writing a novel uh, or writing TV drama, writing any fiction, um, it feels like the, it's very, very close to your face right now. Um, but I find that the process of writing is what moves the world into its own perspective for me. So for about two weeks, I said to myself, God, I can't write a novel about a pandemic now. And then and then this week I've been sitting down going, well, why don't I just try? And recently, in the past couple of days, I found myself writing as if the pandemic has happened and the world is on to the next thing. And that feels quite useful mm. psychologically as well <laughs> to, to be going, OK, well, my novel is then going to be set during a different kind of pandemic in the future. But it will be one where people knew that this had happened and are remembering this. So, yes, well, okay. I, I was thinking, you know, when I'm reading these novels, I I think, well, the problem for the um, and I've had this feeling reading War Diaries, Second World War Diaries as well. And it seems like an obvious point, but it's just like these people don't know how it ends. They don't know, particularly in that mm. kind of first half of the Second World War before the kind of tide turned. Mm. And there's that feeling of and you know, I just felt like. Oh Jesus! It's you know I have the privilege of knowing how this ended, and yeah. what's very stressful about this current period is that we are we're in the middle. We're yeah. like the character in the novel that doesn't have the that doesn't have the narrator, or doesn't yeah. have the appendix or the footnotes or anything to say. Ah, and actually, it turned out six months later, yada yada. It's just like yes. you're constantly in the middle of this huge event that you can't get your head around. So I imagine it must, it must be quite therapeutic to sort of fictionally just sort of jump forward. It's, it's really, really nice. I mean, that's, that's really one of the things that novels are for, for me, is, is to leave the present moment. Um, that, that skill is extremely useful because sometimes the present moment is really unpleasant. Well, finally, I want to say we've been talking about relevant novels which often sometimes means uh you know they can be can be heavy um yeah. and i wanted to ask you to sort of recommend some truly therapeutic reading i found mm. that um uh i finally got around to reading marilyn robinson's gilead and because it's oh. a kind of it's a, it's a man that's towards the end of his life looking back on life with this sort of immense sort of kindness um and empathy and a sense of peace and it just felt like it created a mental space that I otherwise couldn't access. So that would be that would that was my sort of like healing read. Yes, um, that, is a, that is a beautiful book. When you don't um, want to re read World War Z. So what would be your <laughs> what, what would be your kind of like uh, consoling read? Cons I, okay, all right, I've got a few. Um, I I've been reading Dickens um, because you can just lose yourself in a Dickens. Um, I've been reading David Copperfield, which I never read before because the first few chapters are just so, so, so sad. Uh, but once you push through the very, very, very sad part where a child is having quite a lot of sad things happen to him, um, it's just a, it's, he's, just, he's just great, Dickens. Um, David Copperfield is great. It's a life's journey with its ups and its downs and uh, reminded me, has been reminding me that this is not a new experience. Living in a world where people can suddenly die of a bad disease is that's part of human life. 
Um, I could also recommend in terms of books that create their own brilliant world, um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clarke, mm. which is another big fat book, which for me, that's quite appealing. Um, and, and that's a beautiful, magical world that it creates. And finally, I have got for myself um, all of the volumes of Clive James's memoirs, which are just really, really funny. Uh, Clive James obviously died at the end of last year. And I remember reading a, a last interview with him uh, where, you know, he wrote that brilliant poem uh, about the Japanese maple yeah, yeah, yeah. that had been planted outside his house and uh, about how it felt to look at this tree that he knew would outlive him. And then, in fact, he outlived the tree, which is amazing. The tree died. Um, but there was there was a wonderful interview with him, I think, by Sam Leith, I think, um, a last interview where... He, he was asked, what do you regret? And he said, well, I'm just sad that I won't get to see the next bit. Whatever is coming, he, you know, he was sort of, because he was somebody who was interested in the world. And I think to myself, well, this bit is the next bit that he missed. And... <laughs> maybe, that, that, maybe, maybe he'd like to see the bit after the next bit. Right, right, right. <laughs> the next, but, next bit. <laughs> weirdly, for me, it gives me a sense of privilege to go, oh, okay, I'm living through the next interesting bit of human life. And all right, it, it, I wouldn't have chosen it, but here I am. And um, Clive James is just so, so funny. Yeah. And he's got these lovely memoirs about his time at university and uh, about becoming part of the sort of media establishment. And uh, as he said about himself, uh, he said uh, all he's ever had, or all he has is, is the gift uh, to turn a phrase until it catches the light which is just, oh, fuck off for being so good, Clive James. He's Clive James always always makes things better. Yeah. Well, thank you, Naomi Oldman, uh, author of The Power and showrunner, the minute it gets going again <laughs> of the TV Pray version. for me, <laughs> or don't, if you don't believe in God. <laughs> uh, thanks for talking to me, Naomi. It's been a joy. And thanks to you for listening to The Bunker Daily. We'll have another episode on Monday. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or favourite us on Spotify. See you soon and take care. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky and produced by Andrew Harrison. Jacob Archbold was the assistant producer and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>